Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 8. Today's topic, apocalypses. All right. Uh, welcome back, everyone. I am here at the Hotel Bar with my two co-hosts, Ammon and Shannon. How are y'all doing today? Doing okay. Fabulous. Excellent. Excellent. So I know we all got out of session, so I want to hear what session you just got out of and get your drink orders before we get started. So Shannon, what's yours? Well, I think I'll just start with a regular glass of white wine, probably the cheapest on the menu. And I just got out of a session, being in time, I can temporal flow, and so can you. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> How about you, Evan? All right, I am going to stick with my uh, usual. Let me look at the menu. Oh, there's my second cheapest red wine. Looks perfect. <laughs> looks lovely. Actually, I was at the same session, Shannon, but I really liked the paper being in time management, which I felt like, you know, Heidegger is often <laughs> accused of not being practical enough. And this was so practical that I have like a whole new line of notebooks and note cards. I'm ready to go. You shouldn't get your notebooks from Heidegger, but that's, that's my next problem. <laughs> Everybody's still looking for that hidden notebook that is titled Inbox Zero. <laughs> what about you, Lee? So I'm going to stick with my usual also, Fireball and Diet Coke. I just got out of a paper, which I feel like we've all pretty much heard at one point or another in this conference, which was titled, This is the Way the World Ends. Not so much with a question, but more of a comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. That's a topic that we've been talking a lot about lately. Yeah. yeah, and that's actually a segue into today's episode, <laughs> which is going to be on apocalypses, apocalypses plural. So I'm taking the lead today. This was the topic that I really wanted to talk about. And just as some background, I actually wanted to talk about this because it has become increasingly clear to me over the last several years that, or at least I think that my students have what I would call a kind of apocalyptic view of their own future. And it's not something that I remember having at their age. And statistics show that it might actually be unique to the sort of a younger millennial and Gen Z generation. But they have this view for very good reasons. There are a tremendous amount of what Nick Bostrom would call existential threats facing them biological, technological, environmental, obviously, political. So I thought it might be a good idea for us all to talk about the end times. Sounds uplifting. Let's do it. I was hoping that maybe we could start with a Gen Zer, uh, Greta Thunberg, who many people will remember as a really young environmental activist that I believe spoke at the UN. So I just want to start with this kind of very brief clip from the address that she gave there. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was thinking one of the things that these younger generations have to continuously face is the numbers and the timelines have these catastrophes happening well within their lifetimes. Yeah. Right? So that when yeah. they hear X is going to happen, the ocean's going to collapse, there's going to be so much ozone in the air, it's always sort of within a couple of decades. And yeah. I think that's part of why they are apocalyptically minded, because they would be foolish not to actually be so in some senses. Yeah, I remember one of my students last semester. I mean, we weren't actually talking about environmental disaster. We were talking about technological possible apocalypses in the general framework of the question, what do we owe future generations? I framed a question that was basically like, but what about your children and your children's children? Think about your children's generation and their children's generation. And one of my students said, we are the children's generation. Yeah. There's only us, right? Yeah. Like we can't, I can't think about my children's generation. We are the future generation to which everyone owed something and we didn't, you know. Wow, that's so it hasn't been paid. Yeah. So maybe this is a, a little too pointed, but you both have children. Shannon has teenagers or almost teenagers and Eamon has from age a range <laughs> from age infant to teenager. I'm wondering, am I wrong about this sense? This definitely describes the attitude of my older kids who are 13 and 16. And yeah, I mean, when they talk to me about this stuff, like I, there's this part of me that wishes I could say to them, oh, yes, you're just being unrealistic. You don't understand what's going on. But but clearly that's not the case, right? I mean, Greta Thunberg is exactly right here, right? This is such a reversal of where we should be, but they are absolutely aware of the bleak prospects that their future faces. And that's really hard being a parent. I actually yeah. think we don't talk about it enough because I think that for those of us who chose to go on this path, I personally feel a lot of responsibility bordering on guilt for putting this on the younger generation to have to inherit this really terrifying future possibility. Yes, we all have put it on them, but you're not, I mean, you're not a particular polluter last time I checked, do you mean, <laughs> do, but do you mean put it on them by the decision to have children? Is that yeah. what you okay. I mean? I, I mean, existence sure. itself, which is always a burden when yeah. you're a parent. And I think you're probably always concerned about apocalypses when you're a parent. Yeah. Like I bring something into the world that didn't ask to be brought into the world. And what if the world is not a world worth being born into, but it really feels and I guess I can't say because I've never lived at another time, but it really feels particularly brutal to face that kind of a decision right now. I really do take to heart the, the Nietzschean claim that any way of living is worth living. And so therefore, I don't feel that guilt that you're talking about, but that might be my own mistake. But I do think that my kids would rightly be able to say to me, yeah, but, you know, there are features of this world that you've chosen is worth living that we would not have chosen. And that are, in fact, entirely within humans' capacity. So these are not vague threats. These are things that, if not you, your generation, and especially your parents and your parents' parents' generations, chose. And so you weren't just consigning us to some abstract fate. You were consigning us to a very specific fate. Yeah. 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 Lee, what do you think, since you do not have children, what do you think about people who choose to do this or just the fact of having children at this particular time, given that you're seeing students who are voicing this kind of apocalyptic thinking? 
Yeah, I don't want to make a comment on what I think about people who choose to have children. (laughs) Even that one of our co-hosts has two spanking new, brand new babies. But I do want to say that it's very difficult for me to imagine. I mean, again, I'm not a parent, but it's very difficult for me to imagine how one would be honest about the condition of the world right now and the realistic prospects of a young person's future without being some kind of doomsaying parent that sucks the life out of a young child's hopes and dreams. I do wonder how you deal with that. How do you not say to your children if they ask you or when they ask you about climate change that there is a 100% possibility that in their lifetime, there are going to be major climate disasters. There's going to be mass climate immigration. You know, Miami's going to disappear. The coasts are going to disappear. It's only going to get hotter and hotter. How do you not say that? How do you not say to them, it is a fact that before you reach job market age, that 8 million jobs are going to be automated? I mean, I, I just don't know... And again, this is not so much a judgment about choosing to bring new life into the world. It's mm-hmm. really a question about being honest, because I, th- I think that when we talk about these things culturally, mm-hmm. you know, they get put in this sort of therapeutic narrative of resilience and hope and be the change you want to see in the world, all of which ignores the things that are too late to fix. So I do try just, especially with the older kids, to be really honest with them about this. I don't want to be therapeutic. I don't want to talk about resilience. But I do believe in the political ability to ameliorate and to do better. And so I share that with them and I have to live it, right? So they know that my politics inform who I am as a person and as a parent. And I do have hope in some ways politically that if we can organize ourselves and act collectively in the right ways... I'm not entirely a doomsayer. And so like, I share that with them. And you know, that's, so I guess, yeah, like, I can't justify my decision to bring them into the world. But I can offer solidarity. I actually think, Lee, that it's the same thing that you face that we all face with students. I mean, we're talking to young people who are very realistic, because like Ammon said, whether or not we tell them that these things are happening, it's out there. They get it in school. They get it on social media. They know all of these things way younger than you'd even want them to know about these things. So they already know about it. So you kind of have to be honest. But like with our students, our job is to keep open possibilities and to not act as if we are on a railroad track that is necessarily fixed and destined to hit a brick wall. So the whole point, I think, of what we do as educators and as philosophy teachers is to say you have to use your imagination to think of other possibilities because nothing is determined. It's not looking good, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to follow a path right over the cliff. I mean, don't you feel that way with Lee? Like when you're talking to your students, don't you sort of feel like, yes, this is realistic, but we can think otherwise. Yeah, I do think that about some things. I do think that there are some things about which it's just lying to say that. I mean, I'm not trying to make some broad metaphysical claim that everything's already determined and there's nothing that could be done. But there are some things about which nothing can be done anymore. (laughs) 
love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the Hotel Bar Sessions hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness, Ammon is at IdeasManPhD, and Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. So I thought maybe we could just talk a little bit about what we even mean when we talk about apocalyptic visions. Apocalypse, of course, originally was a word that meant like a revelation, you know, sort of revealing. And it wasn't until really the modern period that it came to mean what we now commonly use it, which is a cataclysmic event or the possible end of the world. That is one sense of the way that we talk about apocalypses. But about 10 years ago, or maybe it was a little bit longer than that, Nick Bostrom, who is a prominent figure in the philosophy of technology, coined this term existential risk, which has sort of melded into that narrative of not so much an end of the whole world, but something that could bring about the end of humanity. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today. Real threats to the end of humanity, existential risks. Bostrom defines it as the elimination of all further possibilities right, for humanity. My worry is that those are real, that we are facing real existential no risks. Yeah. And my question, I suppose, for the both of you is whether or not in every instance that is bad. Like, can you imagine? Sorry. Wait, wait. I was, you mean like I was, the end of humanity? Yeah. Okay. So hold on. So I was trying to, I, I, in my mind, that sounded a lot better than it did coming out, but it's a serious question. And I really do think that it's something that we have to ask. In the grand scheme of the universe, humanity has been here for a hot second, not even a hot second. And I just wonder whether or not this obsession with the end of humanity is problematic because it doesn't permit us to even think that it might not be such a terrible thing if humans have their day and move on, become extinct, like other things have become extinct. And that there are certainly many, many benefits, not for us, obviously, but there are many benefits that we could think of that would follow from human extinction. It might not be extinction. It might be that we evolve into some other animal organic form or transhumanist or post. Well, let's let's not even consider that that because that that's a different line of thinking, which maybe. Yeah, yeah, like maybe we'd become a different ape or maybe we'd be uploaded into the cloud and that would be a totally different kind of a thing. But I think you're asking a really good question and an important question, which is, yeah, from our perspective, extinction sucks and it's a really bad idea and nobody really wants to entertain that that could possibly be beneficial. But if you take the human perspective out of it, I'd say it's almost absolutely 100% a benefit to the planet for human beings to go extinct. We have not shown ourselves to be really very good 
at a stewardship and guardianship of the shared world. In fact, we've shown ourselves to be destructive and violent and cruel and <laughs> amoral. So it seems to me that, yeah, once you take out the human perspective, it's probably a good thing for us to go extinct. But I don't really know how to do that without that leading to mass suicide with the hopelessness and despair of the implications of that thought. Well, yeah, okay. you- I, I think that's fair. And I just want to be 100% clear that I'm not trying to make some accelerationist argument, like let's accelerate the extinction of the human species. I'm just trying to say that this is a perspective, I think, that needs to be brought into the conversations, that the conversations are so dominated by obsessively, unrealistically humanist perspective that I worry that they actually get in the way of thinking of different ways of being, different ways of proceeding, different ways of coming up with solutions that may actually end up delaying or preventing our eventual extinction. I think that there's a few problems with this line of thinking, it turns out. <laughs> so to, <laughs> to, to, to Shannon's point first, is the description of humanity that you're giving true? Yes. And if that is the best humanity can do, we will probably mostly go away. And I want to come back to the mostly in a second when I respond to Lee. And the world will be no different because of it. The world will, in some way, shape, or form, deal with our rapacity. However, and I think this gets to my concern with the way in which folks like Bostrom phrase this, because I think Bostrom has an axe to grind that he's not entirely being honest about. If whatever comes next, whatever that means, if we haven't solved that problem as humans, if we or our descendants are in some way part of the future, then if we haven't already solved the problem, we are simply kicking the can down the road again. My biggest concern is not these giant existential risks. And the word risk, I actually have huge objections to, which we can talk about later if we want to. I think that the likelihood that humanity as a whole goes extinct is pretty small, to be honest. I think that the likelihood that civilization ends is much greater. I think that the likelihood that the human race is transformed and changed and that many, many people go extinct is incredibly likely. But the likelihood that all humans go extinct unless the world becomes utterly uninhabitable is pretty small. On the other hand, folks who appeal to risk, the thing about an existential risk is an existential risk justifies just about any response. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are hoarding resources with this in mind because they believe this story and they're paying folks like Nick Bostrom. They believe this story so much that they're therefore willing to countenance any harm to any other group of humans because they're saving the whole species. Well, no, they're not. They're trying to save their way of life. So unless we can figure out how to save the way of life that we have now and the many forms of of life already on the planet and save the diversity of life, then I don't think we deserve to ask the question about existential risk. Wow, I was waiting for how long it was going to take for you to harsh on Musk. So, <laughs> Is this the first in the podcast? I don't know, but no. I was waiting for it, for it to happen in today's discussion. So you did not disappoint. I think that's actually really important perspective to have. Who's pushing this idea? Who's pushing the language of existential risk and why? And you're right. There are people who have a vested interest in preserving their way of life, come what may to everybody else and everything else on the planet. 
I wanted to also explore a little bit more. I mean, Lee, you often bring up this idea that the problem is that we think of ourselves as individuals instead of as part of a collective. And I think that that is absolutely true in the, in the human sense. And in the context of the apocalypse, it's absolutely true in the global sense. We are part of so many material and energy collectives that are constantly flowing into and out of each other. And maybe if we actually push that move of de-anthropomorphizing the problem, it opens up a lot of, of possibilities that aren't just, is the human species going to die or not, but how can humans thrive with each other and with all of these other collectives in such a way that we ward off this kind of inevitable doom? First of all, I agree with both of you that the language of risk is loaded. But I would say, Ammon, that it's not only loaded in favor of people like your two favorite whipping boys, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who you rightly say are trying to ward off risks to a certain kind of life that they want for people like them. But so are you, and so am I, and so is Shannon, right? Like all of humanity cannot be saved, period. All of us are engaging in projects about who and what is going to be saved in what kind of way, who and what is going to persist in what kind of life. We like to think, and I'm just talking about the three of us, but the three of us like to think that we're trying to preserve a kind of life and a kind of humanity that allows for a tremendous amount of diversity, that wants to make special protections for the most vulnerable and many other kind of programmatic protections that we have built into our vision of how it is that we persist, but it's still the case that everyone's not going to survive and whatever risks are out there, which are going to be different for different human populations, are going to be covered by some risk assessment plans and not by other risk assessment plans. That's true. I think though that, I mean, so yeah, can, can we avoid cost benefit analysis? Can we avoid being very careful and clear about how to mitigate harm? No, I completely agree. My concern is with the infinitization of talking about existential risk. Because I think that, first of all, that's misdescribing anything but the very most bleak apocalyptic scenarios. And I think that in the course of doing that, it ends up justifying resource hoarding, which isn't just a way of life for some people, but gets at these questions of diversity, etc., which I think are more than just programmatic. So yeah, I am trying to preserve my way of life. And part of that involves being part of a calculative system. But back to Shannon's point, I do believe that the only way we're going to do that is if we can somehow come to understand that we're all in it together. And my concern about the notion of existential risk is at the very same time that it seems to be wanting to make a move in that direction by saying, but all of humanity, it's actually justifying strategies that allow a very small number of people to exit the system. Instead of asking the question, how do we make the whole system flourish as best we can, given the realities that we face? I totally agree, Ammon. I'm like a thousand percent on board with what you're saying. But will you all just indulge me for a moment and let me just ask the question that dare not be asked of those who dare not be mentioned, which is, is there some value 
to be had with these banana pants people like Bezos and Musk, who are building their rockets to fly to Mars and colonize other planets. Is there some benefit, both in the sense of the imagination of futures where we're not all dead and in the moving forward of technologies that could possibly not necessarily get us to other planets, but could develop ways to handle the crises that we're facing right now. So if we have limited resources and we're doing risk assessment, would I give an extra chunk of resources to banana can't prance crazy people or to Greta Thunberg and scientists who have ideas that are less banana pants crazy and that also might get us to Mars and to the moon and in lots of places. Again, they, they want to present themselves as starry-eyed realists who are willing to suit the moon in the gambling sense. And I don't want to cede that territory to them. I think that when we start to acknowledge and be honest about the fact that there are risks for all of us, and maybe we should maybe talk about what we think those risks are in a second. At that point, it has to be. It has to be a democratic conversation. It has to be a conversation in which lots of voices are respected. So no, I see no benefit to Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. None? You see no benefit. Okay, yes. can I jump in here? First of all, I have no idea what banana pants are, but I'll, just, <laughs> I'll get you a pair. <laughs> I feel like they will not suit me. But I do want to, okay, with extreme caution, I do want to speak in defense of Elon Musk. And this Whoa. is, a, this is, this is oh, here it comes. Here it comes. So Ammon and I, even though we're been longtime friends and we're fake married, if we were actually really married and cohabitating, this would be the cause of our divorce is our <laughs> disagreement about Elon Musk. I concede all of the criticisms that Ammon has about Elon Musk and the ilk, I guess the banana pan ilk, whatever. Of <laughs> the ilk Elon. of the banana pants. Yeah, I don't know what those are. But I do have to say that I do sometimes think, Ammon, that you have a kind of reductionist view of mm -hmm. Elon Musk's worldview, to, to pick something specific. Mm -hmm. uh, when you hear Elon Musk talk about technological advancement, I do feel like he does have a sober assessment of the way that technological advancement is moving. And he does have really good ideas, not the least of which is that we are either going, I mean, you guys know I'm going to say this, but <laughs> we are either going to merge with AI or we are going to be left behind. And in that sense, and those are his words, right? We're either mm -hmm. going to merge with AI or we're going to be left behind. We're going to become extinct. And in that sense, there is a glimmer of a concern for humanity in Elon Musk. In actual practice, it may be the case that only people who drive Teslas or wear banana pants are going <laughs> to be the ones that merge with AI. And in actual reality, notwithstanding the workers' revolution, that will be the case. But I do think that he's got a lot of really good ideas about how we are to navigate this particular really weird historical moment that we're in. You know, everybody makes this comparison, but it's a lot like the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. How are we going to interact with these machines and will they just replace us and will they kill us all? And so I don't think that you're entirely fair to Elon Musk. Now, Jeff Bezos can go walk off a short bridge as far as I'm concerned. Like, Jeff all right, Bezos we all agree with that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will concede I know less about his specifics on AI. Uh, I mean, I my think concerns that... are the Mars bullshit, 
Tesla as a, um, and I, to be clear, I want to go to Mars desperately. My father has ingrained this me from a young age, but I'm going there with the People's Republic and not not on a private. Okay, but, but but let me say this. Yeah. Let me say this though. Good okay, luck. So so leaving out SpaceX. Yeah. But Tesla, right? Whatever you think about Tesla, is a company that's built on making energy efficient vehicles. No. And what? Wait. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Wait. It is. Yeah. And he's been interested in massive public transportation infrastructure, but also his Neuralink. So there's basically SpaceX, Neuralink, and Tesla, right? His Neuralink, which is his kind of AI brain enhancement tech company, is actually really interested in real technologies that are about what he says cognitive enhancement, but are going to be about the ways to make merging with AI accessible and affordable. So I get that you don't like Elon Musk, but I just have to say that, I'd, again, Jeff Bezos is totally fine with writing that guy off. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because we could have a whole thing just on our <laughs> Musk off, right? But there's a couple things that, again, I think really speak back to the apocalypse that are worth bringing up. Neuralink, I'll leave alone. I don't know that well. Tesla and his bullshit hyperlink. The thing about those is that those are occupying the place of real solutions and they're not real solutions. So there is a very easy solution to mass transit that would really help the environment. It's called investing in our current subways and trains, making them more efficient, bringing them to speed. He's actually fighting against that because he has a proposed solution that is bad, that's just technically infeasible, that's designed for a smaller group of people because he's an elitist. And so the point is, is no democratic solution would go with his. We've got a good solution, but we're appealing to this existential threat in order to avoid very real concrete changes we could make now. I don't want to get into all the problems with Tesla, but Tesla ultimately ends up being pretty similar. It's a bad car company that's actually getting in the way of electric innovation as much as it's solving it. It's relying a lot on subsidies that could be better put to more democratic labor practices and that could actually make mass-produced and scalable cars in a way that Tesla is uninterested in because he's an elitist. So this exactly gets to my concern when I'm talking about the kind of existential risk that's being brought up. These look like somebody who cares a lot about the environment. But the actions actually get in the way of real solutions. I know Shannon wants to jump in here, but all I will say is that may be on the finer points true, but we would not even be talking about the possibility of most people owning energy efficient personal vehicles if it weren't for people like Elon Musk. Completely disagree. All right. All right. I'm stepping (laughs) in here and I'm saying you two could go at this forever, but I want to shift the conversation if you, if you will allow me to. Please. (laughs) I think we all secretly need this. I think our our listeners, okay, (laughs) listeners, you could turn the volume back up now. That's right. That's right. The apocalypse may be nigh, but it's not here yet. So in the meantime, take a second to subscribe to Hotel Bar Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. And also check out our website, hotelbarpodcast.com. Be sure especially to click on the interactive page where we post questions about future episode topics. You may hear yourself on a future episode. Now back to our conversation. So I am going to ask both of you a question, which is, if you had to guess, 
what would be our undoing? If you had to guess what the apocalypse would be, zombies, you name it, comets, whatever. What do you think it's going to be? If banana we pants. Were banana pants <laughs> raining from the sky. What would you guess is the most likely candidate? Ammon, what do you think? My answer is really boring, but but uh, it's capitalism. Boring? It's the inability to stop using resources in unjust, inequitable ways, excessive consumption. As we've seen over the last year, as consumption could have gone down, capitalism couldn't. And capitalism is going to keep on ramping up and getting hotter and hotter and hotter uh, until it kills us all. All right, then. What about you, Lee? Yeah, I mean, maybe I need to clarify the question. So this question is about what could possibly bring about the end of humanity? Yeah, I mean, I was asking for something more specific than capitalism because I think many <laughs> yeah, of the a, possible answers oh. could be tied to capitalism. Like, is it going to be locusts? Oh, 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 it's going to be, no, it's going to be uh, climate change and resource collapse. Yeah, so I would just agree with Ammon. I mean, I think that if we're talking about actual extinction of humanity, it's going to be climate change, which causes mass migration, which causes political collapse, which causes resource depletion, which causes the end of humanity. However, I think another option, which in my view, and I know I'm the only one here who thinks this is a positive view <laughs> of the end of humanity, is that we effectively merge into something like post-humans. I think that we are well on our way down that trajectory. I think that it is not a sad trajectory to be on. If we don't get done in by nature, I think that we have this possibility of actually becoming extinct as a species. And when I say that, it's with an asterisk, right? Because what I mean is that if someone a hundred years from now came back, you and I and Ammon would look at that being and would say, that's not a human, but it would be a kind of evolution of a human. You know, one of our listeners sent us a clip that somewhat agrees with you. Blair, our favorite Mormon transhumanist, might be simpatico with this. Let's hear what she has to say. Can we take a second and talk about what we consider to be an apocalypse? One person's apocalypse is another person's heaven. My favorite apocalypse scenario is the one where queer people merge with technology to create a new species that takes over the world. I just feel like a lot of apocalyptic fear-mongering is just conservatives threatening us with a good time. <laughs> I'm down <laughs> with that apocalypse. We know Lee is, that's for sure. <laughs> Did I just get outed on Lee no, you just said apocalypse. you were merging with AI and that was your thing. <laughs> and yes. So, well, I mean, obviously you all are right. It's going to be climate change, but I kind of like to think of the more specifics. Like, is it going to be another pandemic that comes from climate change? Can I just say that it cracks me up and terrifies me that Shannon can say something like, of course, we know it's going to be climate change <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, I feel like that's where we are right yeah. now with, yeah. with climate change. And that, of course, is the problem. You know, it's going to be climate change because that of, right. of that. But just to kind of go back to where we started at the very beginning of this episode, that it does seem to me 
is the default disposition of young people right now. It's like, of course, it's going to be the case. Of course, there are going to be no jobs. Of course, climate disaster is going to occur and there's no avoiding it. Of course, democracy is crumbling. Of course, we're fucking around with the genome. And of course, we're going to manufacture new viruses or new chemical warfares, or there's going to be another pandemic that we can't handle. I just feel like, I want to talk about what it's like to be young now, what it's like Mm -hmm. to be in this space where we're like, yep, things are doomsday-ish. We're not being doomsday-ish. It actually is doomsday-ish. Yeah, but I didn't get to answer. I didn't get to answer the question. Yeah, I want to hear Shannon's answer first. I I want to answer the question. (laughs) Shannon, what's going to do Here's the problem. You guys let me put my banana pants on and now I just feel like I can say, I can talk whenever I want about whatever. Next you're going to start a coup in Bolivia. First of all, Lee, you're absolutely right. And I do want to talk about the situation, especially of young people who have to live with this. Oh, yeah, obviously, we all know it's going to be climate change. But I also just sort of when I'm feeling kind of apocalyptically minded, I like to imagine what exactly is it going to be? Is it going to be a bug? Is it going to be a volcano? Is it going to be an earthquake? Right? Like I live really close to a super volcano. And if that baby goes and it's 5000 years overdue, that's going to that's going to put a oh, dent. That is an existential risk. Yeah. So, okay, right. Shannon, what is, what, what is it? What is it? What is it? I think it's Shannon? water. Oh, that's a fair choice. Yeah. I think yeah, I yeah. think it's yeah. it's water and our absolute inability to take into account how rapidly we are depleting fresh water and how it's already disproportionately affecting people all over the world. If I had to choose, I'd say it's water. So capitalism. So capitalism. (laughs) So we're going to play another clip of another possibility, which is, I think, interesting given what we just saw happen in Texas during the winter storms. Hello, my name is Anna Stull, and I'm an emergency manager with the federal government and for over 30 years have been helping people in crisis. I still spend months at a time managing large fires, volcanic eruptions, and yes, the pandemic. The drinkers at the hotel bar have asked me to address which apocalyptic scenario seemed most likely, and I can answer that in my sleep. It's the compromise of the electric grid system. And sadly, we don't need a total blackout to achieve total chaos. We'll have chaos in the contiguous United States if the compromise is protracted just over two seasons. Our inability to effectively manage the COVID-19 pandemic is evidence enough. The important thing to remember about any nationwide natural disaster or nefarious event is that resiliency begins at home. Then that strength permeates into your community. For catastrophic failure, the only way to survive intact is to foster resiliency at the community level before the event. This requires losing the individual sense of well-being and embracing the collective humanity of your physical neighborhood. It may be tough to think that your next door neighbor that you've never spoken to is more important in the time of crisis than a loved one on the other side of the state or even the nation but the person to your right and the person to your left are the ones who are going to keep your community strong. So yeah, it all starts at home. When you think of societal collapse, I think you tend to think of it in terms of this sort of apocalypse that is concerning people all the way across 
the world or the country or the state that you care about. But the way to forestall that is to focus on the people closest to you. You know, when there are blackouts, neighbors come out and they're sharing food or sharing ice, you know, people are checking up on each other. I remember when the pandemic first started, we were all going around making sure that everybody had food and that they had groceries and that kind of thing. And so there is something there to the fact that that's how you handle these kinds of crises and potential apocalypses. But I also think it's pretty interesting that somebody who works in emergency management for the government thinks it's going to be the electrical grid. That's what's going to do us in. Yeah. I'm wondering if just because you brought up the pandemic, I'm wondering how much you guys think that this last year has changed people's general sensibilities in the way that Anna was just talking about. I think that we're still processing it. I, th- I think that there's a dialectical process to this, where at first we said everything was going to change, and then two months in, nothing seemed to be changed. And I think now we're processing what it was that really changed. And I think that we are all much more mindful of the possibility of real catastrophe. I'm worried that we haven't learned the lesson of sharing enough, right? Yeah. This, we've got these spontaneous things, but we've got to move to collective, organized, systematic abilities to share, cooperate, and think about ourselves in systems. This gets back to your point earlier. I I hope that young people, part of their shared sense of this catastrophe is their shared sense of a solution. I'm hopeful in some ways that they understand that, but I don't know. But do you think that this last year gave people a real glimpse of the end? Here's why I ask. It's because I remember, weirdly, the day that they announced that 40,000 people had died of coronavirus. And I thought 40,000, I mean, you know, now it's almost a half a million or more Mm -hmm. Americans. But I remember thinking 40,000 people. And I couldn't even imagine if if they had said last March, more than a half a million Americans are going to die during this pandemic. I would have, you know, I don't know what I would have thought, but I don't ever feel like ever, ever in the last year, that I had the sense that this might be the end of us. Yeah, I don't think it had that effect. But I do think, and maybe there's a positive to be seen with this, and this is some of the stuff we talked about in our COVID episode, that it shows us that we are vulnerable to things that we think we're not vulnerable to. So I think all of the epidemiologists and the National Institute of Health saying, listen, it's only a matter of time before something like this happens. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 don't worry. The government will take care of it. And it's not really going to be a big deal for a place like the United States. That's what happens to other countries. That's not what happens here. And I think people around the world woke up that, wow, these things have global effects that cannot be contained by borders. And so it really sort of woke people up to the possibility that this is one of the ways that the apocalypse could happen, even though you're right, Lee, I don't think anybody thought this is going to be it. This is the one that's going to do us in. But I bet I some it, people in Italy thought that about yeah, the second Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that yeah. that's true, maybe. But I think, you know, if there's a positive spin to that, it's that people woke up to at least that as something that has to be taken seriously. And that since it does go across borders, like water, like air, like immigration, that these are things that have to be thought of collectively in order to not have them become apocalyptic. I don't wanna be pessimistic and say, we're gonna get past this and no one's gonna have learned any lessons. But I also want to say maybe it's possible that they will have because it really brought to the foreground how precarious life is at this moment. Yeah, I, I, I'm suspect 
that that, that actually was the lesson. Well, but it, if it's not, then I think we really are doomed. Like yeah. if we can't learn from something like this where we saw, wow, this is the thing that if we didn't work together as a globe, it's going to be catastrophic. This is the thing that if politics rather than health and humanity takes precedence, then it's going to be catastrophic. This is the thing where we actually saw it's possible for socialized medicine and for scientific advancement to work when it cooperates in order to develop something like a vaccine is possible, then it's completely catastrophic. I mean, I really think if we don't get our heads out of our asses and learn right now that in front of us are the tools to possibly avoid apocalypse, then we are. We're just doomed. Yeah, I mean, I really do genuinely worry that this was, in retrospect, for a lot of people, really going to be a lesson in resilience, which is a concept in culture that I hate. Yeah, uh, But this is going to be a lesson in if you just buckle down and bear it, that everything works out in the end. And that actually, if I could, brings me maybe back to the original sense of apocalypse, which was this religious sense of apocalypse, which is that the universe, the world is arcing towards some kind of justice or resolution or fulfillment or revelation of meaning that makes the apocalypse not so scary for a lot of people and actually desirable for some people. Mm. And contrasting that with the situation in which we find ourselves in now, which is that we could become extinct and it could be entirely meaningless. It could be not for any reason. There could be no meaning found in it. It's just the next thing that happened. So I know that we all looked at this book, X Risk by Thomas Moynihan, who was basically tracing this idea of apocalyptic thinking from the ancient world to the present. And one of the really interesting things that he shows is that we humans didn't really start thinking about the end of humanity until very, very, very recently, really like just the last couple of hundred years. And this is not really a theme in thinking before the 1800s or so. I wonder whether or not it's the case that now this idea that things might come to an end and there's no making any sense of it, whether that's actually why we refuse to really reckon with the reality of the nighness of the end. <laughs> yeah, I think that things not making sense and this, this meaninglessness is a terrifying possibility. You mentioned, I think, and rightly that globally, we've only thought about this recently. And that even references, you know, the fact that when Revelations was being written, the world that was being imagined being ended was the world of the Roman Empire, right? Because that was the world. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of interesting work done recently on apocalypses that have happened. The apocalypses that happened to the indigenous people in North America, for example, which are real. And yeah, the destruction of meaning is one of the most horrifying parts of that. What it means to be humans in, in these different worlds is entirely lost to us in many ways without meaning. There is, though, and this, there's a lot of interesting research, not on resilience, but on survival and on what happens after the world ends, how you cope with the world after the collapse of meaning. I think that those stories are incredibly important. And I hope, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not there, but I hope that we can learn something from places where this has happened as we imagine global apocalypse. So I have a serious question. Can you imagine the world, including humans, in, let's say, 50 years? Yes. 
No, I try to, but I can't. Okay, Shannon, can you imagine it in a hundred years? Humans? Yes. Yeah. I think if we're actually talking about the extinction of humanity, I think that's thousands of years away because like Ammon said earlier, sure, civilization's going to collapse, but there will still be humans on, on the planet unless it's like a nuclear disaster and then and then that might just be something different. So well, I heard from I can see, I can imagine them, but I don't like what I imagine. Like humans, like in a zoo, like in, in the robot zoo. <laughs> well, You're just hoping yeah. that's what they do to you, Lee. <laughs> I, <laughs> hey, a, a life in a robot zoo would probably be better than my life right now. You know, I mean, the one word that we haven't used so far in this episode is precarity, which is the distinguishing feature of human life for most humans right now. People say how, how awful it would be if the robots take over and we just become like zoo pets or just pets for them. But honestly, my pets do not live precarious lives. Like they do absolutely right. do not. And so this is, of course, John Donaher's argument in his recent book, Automation and Utopia. I mean, he basically argues that what gets commonly called the robot takeover, whatever the AI takeover, that it could be utopic for us, right? That it could actually open up a world in which our lives aren't entirely defined by precarity and that we could actually engage in projects that are interesting and be creative and all sorts of things that are not a current part of most humans' existence. So, so Cybergeddon becomes Cybertopia? Yeah, right. I definitely agree with you there. Like, if there's if there's a way out, I, I actually have become. More I mean, that's basically it. Marx's vision, right? Marx was a yeah. huge fan of technology because why? <laughs> because it liberates workers. But the problem is always with Marx and with this sort of technological utopia is that it has to take energy to run, and we have yet not figured out how to run our technology in environmentally good ways. In fact, what we do is make it way worse. Yes, we haven't figured it out. Yeah. So, I mean, if you- you, Smarter intelligences than us may figure it out. Maybe, maybe. I mean, but okay, so you think that human beings are going to be around for thousands of years. I I am in awe of your optimism. I mean, I don't think it's going to be pretty, though. It's not like I want to be hanging out with those humans. Wait, wait. So is your question, Lee, earlier, maybe I misunderstood. I thought you were asking what it would be like to be human in 50 years. I was asking, can you imagine the world with a non-extinct humanity in 50 years? And Shannon said, yes, she can. And she says she can imagine a world with humans in it for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that I think that humans are going to be around for thousands of years. I just don't. I have I don't. no idea. I have no idea what it's going to look like. How long do what? you think we have, Lee? Uh, I'm very hesitant to say this on air, but I'm going to say a hundred, less than a hundred. And you think that after that, we're going to be extinct either in some kind okay. of transhumanism or yes. because we didn't learn our lesson from COVID? Yes. I think extinct with an asterisk, right? Like we may have evolved, merged, whatever, with some other form of being that Again, like I said before, if that being from 100 years came back today and introduced itself to us, that we would say that's not a human, even though, you know, it may be some evolutionary process that evolved from where we are now. But I also think that it's entirely likely that the planet will become uninhabitable within 100 years. I I think that there's a real possibility of a genetically engineered super virus. I think there's I mean, I think yeah, I don't think that 
humanity as we know it will exist in 100 years. Oh, I agree with that. I mean, when I say the thing that wait I Wait a minute, you've of, changed your answer wait, like four wait. times oh, now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's because oh, yeah. you, totally you haven't heard my actual that. answer oh, yet. Yeah, yeah, obviously. No, no. My answer is actually consistent. You just have, because this is like, <laughs> trust me on this. You just don't understand it on as many yeah. levels as I do. 14 dimensional chess. <laughs> no, the thing that I can't imagine is the world in 100 years. In other words, I think that humans biologically, I think that we're around for a while. I think that even a super virus doesn't wipe everyone out. Climate collapse there is not going to completely make the planet uninhabitable. Nuclear war might, but most most of the disasters, like just realistically, most of the disasters we imagine do not wipe out all humans. They wipe out human civilization. They wipe out what we understand being human. But some subset of our descendants continues in a world that we can't fathom. And that's my consistent answer. Well done, Anna. <laughs> okay, but that's not consistent with the answer I just gave. No, I said I agreed with the the part about the world. Uh, I I agreed with something you said. I don't remember what it was. We'll <laughs> Good we'll, enough. We'll rewind it later and figure Good it enough. out. Yeah. Okay, so this has been pretty dark and foreboding. Let's have some fun. Like, what are your favorite apocalyptic movies, literature, et cetera? And let me say this first. One of the really interesting things about that Thomas Moynihan X-Risk book is that he notes, and it never really had occurred to me before, although like many things, it's obvious once you think about it, that there are no really post-apocalyptic movies, post-extinction movies, that is. I mean, it would, A, be a very boring movie to watch, but, you know, we have these post-apocalyptic movies in which humans still exist. So, yeah, let me ask you, what are some of your favorites? So you want dark? I'll give you dark. In fact, <laughs> my favorite apocalypse movie <laughs> is the Netflix limited series Dark, which everyone should watch, which is about a limited apocalypse, but it's about people trying to prevent... Some people trying to prevent and some people trying to hasten the apocalypse. And that's what the apocalypse is. Shannon loves it too, I know. And we've been trying to- I absolutely it. love it. And I, yeah. we, we do have a sort of secret desire to do to make a Lee whole episode on this and make Lee watch the entire series with subtitles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I'll get around to it. Yeah, right. So, okay, I'm going to try really hard not to geek out and talk too long because honestly, I could just go on and on because I love literature and movies that deal with apocalypses. So I love Octavia Butler. I love Ursula Le Guin. I love J.G. Ballard. All the books that he writes, all of this stuff is sort of about human apocalypses and in what way, in what form is it going to come? I love the poetry of Robinson Jeffers, which talks about the inhuman, obviously Robert Smithson. But I will say, and this goes back to Lee's point about the original meaning of apocalypse. I think that my favorite of all of the various literary treatments of this question is Isaac Asimov's The Last Question. Have either of you read this? No. no. Oh, it's so good. I mean, I'm hesitant to say what happens in the end because I think everybody should read it because that's the aha moment. But it's basically about humanity develops a supercomputer called the Multivac, and it really helps them develop uh, technology for interstellar travel and energy conservation. And it's really awesome and humanity progresses. And then at one point they ask the Multivac, how can entropy be decreased? And the computer says insufficient data to answer. 
Hmm. And then it just goes for like millennia, millennia into the future. Humanity advances, becomes transhumanity. And they keep asking the question and it keeps saying insufficient data to answer. And then at the end, there's no more humans. There's just the multivac. And it's like, oh, I have an answer, <laughs> but I won't say what it is. Okay, yeah. Now I'm going to read it. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And it's short. So everybody should read it. It's fantastic. You should teach it too. And we'll put a link to that in our Absolutely. episode notes. So I may have thought of this question in a more traditional way, but I would say that my two favorite recent post-apocalyptic films are that 2006 film Children of Men. I do think that it presents the apocalypse in the Nick Bostrom sense of an existential risk, like the elimination of future possibilities. And that, of course, is what the basic plot line of this film is, is that women can no longer have birth and the species can't be propagated. But also, you know, I never read this, but I did watch the film for The Road, which I think was adapted from a Cormac McCarthy book. And man, it is a dark and depressing film. But but really well done. I wish that there were more optimistic post-apocalyptic films. I mean, I can think of films that have a future vision. So one that is a favorite of both Ammon and I is the very short HBO miniseries Years and Years. I really like that, but it's hard for me to call it post-apocalyptic because it doesn't quite get to the next step that sort of ends with a character uploading her mind to the cloud. But those are the kinds that I'm looking for. I think that we'll see more and more of those. You know, fun fact, and I don't even know if I can even say that this is a direct correlation or what, but in Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, he says that he is being punished for his all too great love of the children of men. Really? Nice. I don't remember that. She was, yeah. Which he was, which we all so, are. We all we all inherit. We're all actually, Promethean yeah. inheritors. Yeah, it's, it all comes back to fire because that's that's what's gonna the great um, conflagration. So I, I happen to know I can't remember where I read this, but Cormac McCarthy apparently had the idea for the road when he was staying with his son at a motel in Amarillo, Texas, and he looked out and he thought, "What if we were the only two people left?" And having spent time at a motel in Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> That's always really stuck with me. (laughs) Well, given that we have now sort of gone all the way down into this discussion of apocalypses, it might be interesting to note that our next podcast is going to be on, what is it, Ammon? That's going to be on the philosophical canon. So at least we won't have to think about that once the apocalypse hits. Right. What 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 are we preserving for posterity anyway? That's what we want to talk about, right? Like, what? How is? How have we come to this thing called the philosophical canon? Given that we're professors who have a vested interest in it, back to vested interests, what exactly does it amount to? And given that we also, all three of us, have problems with it, how do we negotiate our understanding of its incredibly flawed nature yeah. with the fact that it's formed who we are? So, quick take: Are you pro canon or anti canon? Anti. Well, I'm Chicken. not going to tell you what I think yet, but. <laughs> I am that means she's with a lot of asterisks about what that means. We're not going to have any asterisks less left after this episode. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're going to die by asterisks. Next next episode for my drink, I'm going to order just asterisks on the rocks. <laughs> well, it okay. looks like it's last call. So. Yeah, we definitely got last call. So I will catch y'all next time to talk about the kaboom cannon. <laughs> Boo. All right. I'll see you guys then. Thanks. Take care. Bye.